0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. John Wayne Gacy, Eric and Lyle Menendez, Charles Manson, these names alone can conjure fear and disgust. Most people would sneer at the idea of sitting down to have a friendly conversation with any one of them. Yet all these men have found friends, admirers, and even romance during their incarceration. It isn't just the most notorious killers who find love in lockup. Relationships with inmates are more common than most realize, which begs the question, What do some people find so attractive about convicted killers? The psychological issues underpinning these relationships are complex. No two criminals or lovers are the same, but with enough digging, it's possible to take a brief peek behind the curtain. There, you'll find why some people believe they've found their perfect match, in the last place most would ever think to look. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the first episode of a three-part special about finding love in Lockup. Over the next three weeks, we'll take a look at the ways inmates form relationships in prison, the issues that complicate these romances, and the high-profile cases of love gone right and wrong. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll cover some of the reasons inmates and their partners alike look for love in prison. We'll discuss the potential benefits of these relationships, as well as the psychological phenomena that can complicate them. We'll also talk about the disastrous consequences that result when people get too close to modern history's greatest monsters. Next week, we'll delve deeper. We'll recount the dramatic tales of three prison love stories that all took dangerous turns. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world.
0: Love is likely the last word on anyone's mind when they envision prison. But for many inmates, it's their first and last thought each day. A supportive network of friends and family can help prisoners endure the harsh loneliness on the inside. Without it, the solitude and emotional stress of prison is only destructive. It isn't just a spiritual ache. Loneliness among inmates has real consequences for prisoners and for society at large. Before I continue, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Clinical psychologist Ami Rokosh pointed out that loneliness increases both criminality and recidivism, or the likelihood that an individual will become a repeat offender. If the aim of jail time is to rehabilitate inmates, It's clear that the emotional impact of such confinement can work against that goal. Joanne Wendy Barito, an activist for prison reform and a former inmate herself, said of her experience, at the beginning, you start making friendships and then they leave. And then you start building up new friendships and then they leave. It's hard to relate to people when everybody's feeling the same loneliness or emptiness or fear. In such a crushing environment, it's no wonder that many inmates are desperate to connect with those on the outside. A simple reminder that the outside world hasn't completely forgotten about them goes a long way toward bolstering their morale. Penpal organizations are the most common ways inmates connect to the outside world. Participants in a program called Prisoner's Pen Friends reported that the letters made them feel happier, less lonely, and more hopeful about their futures. Though many of these pen pal organizations strive to create only casual friendships, sometimes the letters lead to more intimate connections. The hope for romance is what attracts many inmates to the programs, and it's only natural for prisoners to dream of finding a partner willing to wait for them on the other side. Because of this demand, there are plenty of websites geared toward forging romantic relationships with inmates. A simple search turns up sites like prisoninmates.com, meetaninmate.com, and womenbehindbars.com. Some sites allow users to search for potential pen pals by gender, sexuality, and age. Most inmates include a short description of themselves and write that they're looking for a friend. Composing letters and corresponding provides both parties a way to pass the time. As former inmate Timothy McManus told Bloomberg Businessweek, spending time writing and reading letters was key to helping him endure his sentence. According to Businessweek, the majority of these sites operate on very low margins and the owners describe them as labors of love. Researcher Tom Churchill calls them a public benefit He said they are a small step toward positive change and we need change. Undoubtedly, these avenues are beneficial for many prisoners who are only looking for a way to pass the time. But it would be naive to ignore the people who take advantage of the system and play on people's sympathy. Some prisons in the US have even prevented inmates from using those kinds of websites because they were abused. In Oklahoma, for example, one inmate was found guilty of scamming several pen pals. He built relationships with gay men under false pretenses, then threatened to make their sexuality public unless they sent him money. He was ultimately found liable for over $100,000 in restitution. Not everyone gets paid back, however. The Los Angeles Times reported that one man in Santa Cruz was conned out of over $17,000 after answering a personal ad from a prisoner in a magazine. He believed he was writing to a young man who was down on his luck, but he was actually communicating with a middle-aged convicted murderer. He told a journalist, often minorities feel we're all in this together Here was this gay young man. I'm gay. I adopted a father or protector role. The murderer mercilessly took the man for all he was worth. He even convinced his pen pal to take out a loan without any way to pay it back. All the sacrifice was for the sake of a liar who was only out to scam him to begin with. There are grim tales like these across all demographics. One man in Michigan was manipulated by a female prisoner who ruined his credit rating. After running up a credit card bill for over $10,000 and defaulting on a small loan, his reputation was left in tatters. Worst of all, some prisoners thrive on this type of manipulation. To a minority of con artists, it serves as an inexhaustible, lucrative income stream. David Paul Hammer, an inmate at Oklahoma State Penitentiary, claimed that he had tricked pen pals into sending him more than $150,000. He corresponded with over 1,000 people, telling them all whatever they wanted to hear in order to get to their wallets. He boasted to The Advocate magazine, quote, "'I mean, people who are lonely "'are so willing and vulnerable "'because they're reaching out "'and they're wanting something.'" Annette Viator, a Louisiana attorney, said that some prisoners are willing to do anything to steal from sympathetic pen pals. They lie about their gender, sexuality, and especially their circumstances if it gets them closer to a payout. These stories serve as legitimate cautionary tales, but proponents of the pen pal programs insist that they don't represent the typical cases. One operator of an inmate dating site stated that he received complaints in about 10% of cases. For the vast majority of prisoners, the correspondence represented a sincere attempt to meet, talk, and listen to those on the outside. The truth is, the romances don't always need to go one way. Some people on the outside are in need of someone to talk to just as much as the prisoners themselves. A few have truly found love with partners who are incarcerated. Sometimes an unconventional relationship is what works for them. For example, in her book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill, Sheila Eisenberg described the experience of a woman named Maria, who struck up a relationship with an inmate named Phil. Maria had been physically abused by her husband for years before meeting Phil. She associated sex with physical coercion and psychological trauma. This made it nearly impossible for her to consider a relationship with another man. But Phil was different. The fact that he was incarcerated meant that every aspect of their romance was put in her hands. She had the power to visit the prison only when and if she wanted. She didn't need to fear for her safety if the two of them had a disagreement and she couldn't be pressured to make things more intimate. It was all up to her. Eisenberg wrote, Phil is a controllable relationship. He can't beat Maria, abuse her, or even leave his socks on the living room floor. He can't place demands on her for sex, for a good meal, for anything. For people who have undergone traumatic past, Having this level of control over their partner is attractive. They don't fear embarking on a relationship with a convicted murderer because they are the ones in the position of power. Their partners have no recourse if they decide to answer letters late or hang up on a call early. Often in seeking a relationship with an inmate, these men and women are searching for a primarily emotional rather than a physical connection. Like the prisoners themselves, many just want someone to talk to and confide in. Loneliness isn't only reserved for those in jail. Though many inmates and others are undoubtedly seeking something sexual, it wasn't a consideration for Maria. After years of negative experience with sex, she was content to focus on other things. She preferred to talk, write, and listen to Phil she was fully aware that her situation was unconventional, but she'd endured unusual trauma throughout her life. That was a situation that worked best for her. However, there's still a fair amount of cognitive dissonance involved in their relationship. Though the situation might be safe in some ways, that doesn't mean it's completely free of danger. Coming up, We discuss the dark side of relationships with prisoners and the potentially destructive psychological consequences.
2: Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with. A companion to grow old with. A conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from podcast Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all
0: But as we've explained, love can positively affect an inmate's rehabilitation and offer unconventional benefits for their partner on the outside too. Still, there are dangers in these relationships as well. For example, Maria fell in love with a man named Phil, even though he was incarcerated. He treated her differently than her abusive husband and the physical distance between them made her feel safe. But the reason Phil was in prison in the first place was for killing his girlfriend. You'd think this would make Maria frightened of Phil. Instead, Maria and Phil maintained that the altercation was an accident, even after he was convicted of second-degree murder. Sheila Eisenberg wrote that of the 30 women she interviewed for her book, none of them fully believed that their boyfriends or husbands were guilty of the crimes they were jailed for. Each and every one had some kind of excuse or extenuating circumstance, though all had been definitively convicted of murder. Some claimed, like Maria, that her lover's violence was simply an accident. Many believe their boyfriends or husbands were entirely innocent. Still others blamed specific circumstances or felt that because their partners were intoxicated at the time of the killing, that the death was a unique tragedy. In their eyes, it wasn't really the fault of the murderer. This impenetrable denial is a key facet of many of these inmate-civilian relationships, according to Dr. Charlotte Castle. She wrote, Each woman totally colludes with her man's denial system. She is absorbed into his being. They bond through this incredible denial. Basically, denial is essential for the inmate to find a partner but it's also required for the partner in order to continue the relationship to fully accept that one is in love with a cold-blooded killer would mean admitting more than just a lapse in judgment it might involve delving into sensitive personal issues that most wouldn't care to explore in maria's case Psychologist Dr. Carl Rotenberg believed that Phil's crime subconsciously resonated with Maria. After enduring untold physical and mental abuse, he speculated that Maria may have secretly wanted her own husband to die. Because she never went through with that violent fantasy, she may have sought to live vicariously through Phil. In their relationship, she was in charge, essentially controlling a violent killer. In those moments, she might have felt that she had the same power over life and death that Phil did, the power she wished for when she was suffering at the hands of her husband. Though Phil was not abused like she was, Maria identified with him more than she wanted to believe. From Her Story we can get a glimpse into the complex psychological factors that drive people to form romantic relationships with murderers. It isn't that potential lovers completely shut out a killer's violent deeds all of the time. Instead, they separate the murderer's violence from their personality. They view the aggression as the product of a one-time situation and not as something that truly reflects a killer's inner being. Maria simultaneously denied Phil ever intended to murder while subconsciously sympathizing with the emotions that may have led him to commit the crime. One way this curious balance is struck is by convincing oneself that an entirely different person lurks deeper inside a killer's soul. This imaginary entity would never lie or resort to violence with them. This places the murderer on a pedestal and makes them out to be a deep, complex person whose inner goodness is only revealed to those with the willingness to see it. In effect, this doesn't just make the killer special, it makes their lover special as well. In their mind, only they possess the unique power to bring out the best in their chosen inmate— That is the reason so many of the typical denials that partners of incarcerated criminals offered fixated on extenuating circumstances. As psychologist, Dr. Stuart Fischoff said, she denies the true character of the man regardless of whether he will abuse her or murder someone else. One example of this mindset could be found in the relationship between Eric and Tammy Menendez. Eric and his brother Lyle, who we've covered on a previous episode of this show, became notorious in 1993 after murdering their parents in their Beverly Hills mansion. The story inspired public fascination because of the Menendez brothers' privileged backgrounds and photogenic public appearances. After their convictions, they got plenty of mail from sympathetic admirers. One of those letters came from Tammy Sackerman, who was married at the time, She told People Magazine that when she saw Eric on television, quote, I could see the pain in his eyes. I felt so sorry for him. Tammy corresponded with Eric regularly for years. In 1996, after her husband died by suicide, she visited Eric in person and their relationship blossomed from there. In the years since, Tammy has insisted that Eric is a kind soul who was put in impossible circumstances. The Menendez brothers claim that they killed their father because he was physically and sexually abusive. However, these accusations were largely dismissed by the prosecution during Eric's murder trial because there was little to no evidence backing them up. Tammy admitted that she didn't fully believe the claims at first either, but now she has completely internalized them as justification for Eric's actions. She has said, I believe that within everybody put in certain circumstances, you will, you know, be able to kill somebody. I mean, I do believe that Eric is a very good person. Like many people who fall in love with convicted killers, she has grasped for extenuating circumstances to explain away her partner's crimes. But evidence suggests that these individuals aren't truly forming these relationships in spite of a murderer's past. Instead, the violence can be part of the appeal, a sign that their lover is powerful an attractive quality in and of itself many of the people who fall for killers have described a guilty pleasure at visiting the prisons. With the thick walls surrounding them, the guards looming, and the pervasive sense that they're violating a societal taboo, the relationships provided a sense of danger and intrigue. In a sense, prison created a safe environment that still felt exciting, For some people, there is nothing more thrilling than seeking new experiences, flirting with danger, and subverting expectations. This dynamic is likely at play in many inmate-civilian relationships. Depending on the circumstance, these sort of cheap thrills could be harmless. After all, for the most part, prison visitations are safe, with reasonable precautions, Fulfilling relationships are possible if both parties are on the same page. But the reality is that few romantic relationships formed with killers last. Many murderers are just looking for a way to pass the time or want a captive audience to manipulate. The same often goes for their partners. Some people are just after a morbid fling. Not everyone is looking for true love. Even if a relationship is short-lived, however, it's dangerous to deny the reality of the situation. Taking someone's honesty for granted can have significant consequences. This is especially true for vulnerable groups, such as abuse survivors, whose trauma may put them at particular risk. Because their self-esteem is often fragile, survivors can be attracted to anyone who appears to give them the validation they need. Someone caught in a cycle of abuse may also be apt to make excuses on behalf of their partner. And as we said, it's this denial that some killers feed upon, people with endless patience who simply enjoy toying with the emotions of others. For the most sadistic murderers, courting admirers and using them for their money, favors, or affection is simply a game When it comes to modern history's most infamous killers, the power imbalance rarely results in a wholesome relationship. There are plenty of examples of notorious killers attracting deluded fan bases, obsessed with violent criminals. It seems impossible that anyone would be able to deny the guilt of these murderers in the same way that Maria did for Phil, Yet there are those who are willing to ignore any amount of evidence to get what they want. Perhaps the most well-known figure who received this kind of attention was Charles Manson. Leader of the despicable Manson family, his cult was responsible for the murders of nine people, including actress Sharon Tate. Manson's capture and court case created an unprecedented flurry of publicity thanks to his bizarre antics and violent racist beliefs. Such an unapologetically evil man was rightly seen by most as a dangerous, unstable criminal, but for some, he was instead a compelling, charming figure who inspired awe, admiration, and even lust. After his arrest, Manson received gifts, fan letters, and visitations from dozens of people who found him fascinating and alluring. Even decades after his conviction, Manson still had followers and admirers. According to some psychologists, there was one major factor that drove that kind of obsession, infamy. In the modern celebrity culture, notoriety is tantamount to power and authority. It provides a way for individuals to separate themselves from those around them and feel superior. It allows people to think of themselves as special. For that reason alone, simply rubbing elbows with an infamous criminal can be an intoxicating prospect. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology wrote, Some women also seek fame by proxy or believe they can tame the wild beast in a violent man. These women get to participate in the drama of a trial and the appeals process and perhaps even the execution. For someone who feels underappreciated or invisible to those around them, Associating with a celebrity, even a celebrity killer, provides them with a twisted sense of validation. They don't necessarily care what the crowd is saying as long as people are talking about them. The prospect of returning to their previous identity as a nobody becomes frightening. Unfortunately, getting involved with someone like Charles Manson is a genuinely dangerous proposition He was widely regarded as a calculating manipulator and the powerful sway he held over his followers has become legendary. He saw people only as a means to an end and thus wasn't truly capable of love. That didn't stop people from trying though, even well after most of his fame had faded. Though he casually dated fans for years, one of his most well-known relationships didn't become public until a few years before the end of his life. In 2014, 81-year-old Manson got engaged to a 26-year-old woman named Afton Elaine Burton, who he nicknamed Star. Reportedly, she had been writing letters and visiting Manson for nine years by that point, since the age of 17. Burton operated several websites that proclaimed Manson was innocent, but it's unknown exactly what she really felt about the man himself. There is reason to believe that she was solely after Manson's fame, trying to use him as much as he was known to use his admirers. The main evidence for this is the fact that their relationship didn't progress very far past their highly publicized engagement. Though Burton continued to insist to reporters that she truly loved Manson and couldn't wait to be his wife, they never made it down the aisle and the couple ultimately allowed their marriage license to expire. Journalist Daniel Simone stated that the reason the wedding fell through was because Manson discovered Burton was out to make money off his eventual death. According to Simone, Burton hoped she could gain legal custody of Manson's corpse when he passed away. She allegedly planned to display the body in a glass case as a macabre tourist attraction. The story has a certain ring of truth. On the other hand, nine years is a long time to fake a love affair. It's entirely possible that Burton had other motivations. But if Simone's account is true, Burton's story demonstrates the powerful attraction that fame and fortune can have. It can take hold even when the celebrity in question is an unrepentant monster. Sadly, Burton's wasted youth is one of the mildest examples of the consequences that can result when people try to win the hearts of notorious killers. When we return, we investigate more cases of serial killer celebrity worship and the trouble with romancing convicted murderers. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere, at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Egglands Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. The need for love and attention is universal. One even dangerous criminal's experience But while a romantic relationship with a prisoner can provide some unorthodox benefits, it can also come with harsh consequences. The fact that often the most sadistic killers receive the most love letters makes this danger all the more pertinent. As we've already touched on, infamy plays a direct role in the desirability of certain prisoners. Jack Levin, a criminologist, likens the obsession with mass murderers to a kind of celebrity worship. He described fans of murderers as the same women who might correspond with a rock star or a rap artist. The crucial difference, however, is in the perceived distance between the average person and the celebrity. Levin pointed out that people don't generally expect a personalized letter or a long correspondence with a renowned actor but prison provides an essentially captive celebrity audience. There's a greater likelihood that one could get into a distant relationship with a convicted murderer than they could with a famous musician, for example. But just like in the case of rock stars, the more well-known the killer, the more admirers they have. Though factors like good looks and perceived charm play a role, notoriety is most important. According to the spokesperson for the San Quentin prison in California, the most attention grabbing murderers received the highest volume of fan mail by far. He said, you take our five highest profile killers here and you've got your answer about who the most popular inmates are. The disturbing truth is that in general, the most sadistic killers grab the most headlines and thus they attract the most fans from name recognition alone. The extent of their crimes or the circumstances involved are secondary at best. Chris Watts, who we've covered on a previous episode of this show, is the perfect example. Watts became notorious after killing his pregnant wife and two young daughters. His horrific, senseless crime became the subject of a ravenous news cycle, which spread his name and photo far and wide. Sure enough, within days of being convicted, Watts was already receiving love letters. One woman wrote, Everyone is saying horrible things about you, but I know in my heart that they are wrong. I've been watching your interview and I just became attracted to you and your story. Don't ask me why. Another described Watts as having a kind face and sent him a picture of herself in a bikini it's difficult to understand how any woman would find the story of a man who brutally murdered his wife to be attractive. In Watt's case, there may be a factor other than infamy at play. Some psychologists theorize that attraction to killers results when a person has a warped view of masculinity. Elliot Layton, an anthropologist and expert on serial murder, has said, in a twisted kind of way, the man who is the most strong and dominant and most violent will appear to be the most male. For some people, this vision of masculinity has been reinforced since childhood by relatives or societal depictions of power and authority. The ideal of manly strength and protection has been falsely associated with brutal violence. Past trauma often shapes this worldview. Of course, there's nothing actually admirable or powerful about attacking unsuspecting loved ones with a weapon. But in the minds of some, the cowardice of wanton violence is the very core of masculinity, and if controlled, an attractive trait in a partner. This is bolstered by the belief that they are special. They can believe their lover would never direct that violence towards them. The danger then actually offers an element of security and protection against other threats. As we've discussed, there doesn't seem to be any amount of denial that is too ludicrous for some people. David Berkowitz, nicknamed the son of Sam, was responsible for the deaths of eight of his victims. Following his arrest, he was also a particularly popular recipient of love letters. Several admirers wrote to him stating that they believed he was innocent or misunderstood. In his blue eyes, they claimed, they saw the unmistakable signs of a good man. They seemed to fantasize about rehabilitating a person who they imagined was wounded and in need of someone to fix him. It wasn't a real show of love or sympathy. Instead, It stemmed from a misguided faith that they had the unique ability to purge Berkowitz's darkest urges. They wanted to believe in themselves for a chance to prove they were exceptional. The idea was attractive in much the same way that his celebrity was. Unfortunately for these romantics, they are nothing more than tools to these serial killers. In the minds of the murderers, their admirers only exist to feed their egos. Just as notoriety can inspire fan letters, the prospect of becoming so popular can motivate potential murders too. For disturbed narcissistic individuals, a fantasy of achieving infamy can drive their horrific violence. Some serial murderers, for example, are superficial charmers who see people as toys to play with and manipulate. They are experts at putting on an act of fooling their victims into believing they are harmless. Carl Rotenberg, a criminal psychologist, wrote that inmates are the best psychologists in the world thanks to the ample free time they spend watching and listening to those around them. Because they often have nothing else to do, they are able to focus all of their energies on the object of their affection, appearing to be a devoted and loving partner. In reality, it's often nothing more than a long con. One killer who's notorious for his ability to charm and manipulate is John Wayne Gacy. He was a monster responsible for the slaughter and rape of at least 33 people. He was also a wolf in sheep's clothing incredibly adept at portraying himself as a wholesome father and the average family man. He was considered a pillar of his Illinois community. Despite slaughtering so many people, none of his loved ones had any idea that Gacy was capable of violence. Thanks to his reputation, not to mention dozens of front-page headlines, Gacy inspired a sizable fan following after his arrest. The fact that he didn't look like a physically imposing, cold-blooded murderer fascinated many. It made it all too easy to believe the fantasy that Gacy was really innocent or misunderstood. It drew in people naive enough to buy his act and their fawning attention was exactly what he wanted. For years, Gacy received mountains of letters from a sympathetic public. Some praised his intelligence, while a few seemed intrigued by his disturbing deeds. Still others insisted that he was innocent, despite the overwhelming evidence filed against him. Though Gacy wasn't conventionally attractive or well-spoken, the mystique he surrounded himself in attracted plenty of potential marks. Like many other killers, He was all too happy to hoodwink anyone who made the mistake of trying to get close to him. One such person was a woman named Sue. After suffering in an abusive relationship, she got into contact with Gacy after reading his story in a newspaper. She said she wanted to believe he was innocent and the two started corresponding regularly. They talked for almost a year Sue visited him regularly in prison, even bringing her children along to the meetings. Throughout all that time, he never raised his voice, never said an unkind word to her, and made her feel as if she were the only person in the world who mattered. To continue receiving this kind of validation, Sue managed to convince herself that Gacy was simply misrepresented by the media. But eventually, that illusion shattered. During one visitation, Sue's young son told Gacy that there were other serial murderers who had killed more people than him. Instead of deflecting, Gacy became defensive. Sue saw him turn red through the plexiglass barrier between them. He drew his lips tightly together, then fired back at the boy. He angrily swore that no one had ever murdered more people than him. Sue was shaken to her core. After months of doing mental gymnastics trying to justify their relationship, she was hit with irrefutable proof, words from the man himself. After a blow to his ego, Gacy let his friendly mask slip for a moment He lost Sue, then and there. Once she'd accepted that Gacy was guilty, Sue couldn't help but see all of the red flags clear as day. She remembered another time when he'd referred to his victims in a derogatory way. She tried to rationalize it at the time, but it was difficult to ignore after his tantrum in front of her son. It can be easy to dismiss stories like these or to blame the people who are taken in by con men like Gacy, but they prey on the most vulnerable groups they can find, people who by and large are simply desperate for someone to talk to. The fact was, Sue liked being around Gacy because he built her up in a way no man ever had before. In order to manipulate her, he treated her with superficial kindness and respect. For a long time, she couldn't bear to give that up. She craved that kind of validation and so concocted a narrative in her head that allowed her to ignore his horrible past. Hers is far from the only case. Those who write to killers or other prisoners are often terribly lonely. Some tell in their letters how they've been subjected to abuse and can't get the care they need to properly process the trauma. Others have physical or mental troubles that isolate them from the outside world. For some, the notoriety they gain from romantic involvement with a killer is the only time they feel special. Compassion is what they need, just like the majority of inmates who are searching for a genuine connection. Important to keep the risks of these relationships in mind, but in the end, there are some Find love in lockup. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of our Love in Lockup special. We'll go into depth about three stories of inmate relationships that took a dangerous turn and the disastrous consequences that followed. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Women Who Love Men Who Kill by Sheila Eisenberg extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Chelsea Wood, Mickey Taylor, and Brian Petrus. I'm Leni Hobbs.
2: Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new Parcast Limited series Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to till death do us part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.